Welcome to Layers of Film, the show where mediocre people discuss masterful films the first Monday of each month. I am your host, Austin Killian, joined by my co-host, Big T. Big T, how are you doing? I'm doing so well, Austin. How are you? I'm doing great. You're so polite. You're just one of the most polite people. We've been talking for like the past half hour, and now all of a sudden, <laughs> you're targeted a completely different uh, tone. What can I say? I was raised right. I know how to be polite. Oh, good on you. I'm I'm happy for you. Anything exciting happened over the past month? Uh, it's officially spooky season. Oh. My favorite time of year. So, is it really officially for you? September is spooky season. Yeah, spooky season goes. Actually, never mind. Sorry, I apologize. This episode will go up in the spooky season. We're recording it in September. That's why it's not. That's why I'm confused. No, September is also spooky season. Once Trader Joe's rolls out their fall stuff, it is officially spooky season in my household. I've only heard of Trailer Joe, tra- Trader Joe's through podcasts and stuff because that's not something that really exists over here. You've never been to a Trader Joe's. I don't even truly know what a Trader Joe's is. My friend, you have not lived until you have gone. Fall hunting at Trader Joe's. What does that even mean? (laughs) Fall hunting. They roll out a whole line of fall products that are phenomenal. They have pumpkin flavored things and chips that are shaped like leaves and pumpkin spice muffins and pumpkin brioche. There's a Trader Joe's in Utah. You should know what? Yeah, I think it's in Salt Lake somewhere. No way. I had no idea. I know there's a Trader Joe's because when we lived there, we went to Trader Joe's. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's weird. Well, did you guys live in Salt Lake though? No, we were in Provo, but we oh, okay. I'm pretty sure it's up towards Salt Lake because we would Man. make the 30 minute trek to... 30 minute trek just to go to Trader Joe's, which is... Is, is it a convenience store? What the, What is it? It's a grocery store. Oh, it's a grocery yeah. store. Because there's like... Yeah, it's got all sorts of good food and stuff. Because what I've seen mostly is like Smith's, obviously Walmart, Harmon's. I've never really seen a Trader Joe's. That's Trader Joe's. What the heck? There's definitely a Trader Joe's in your state. Cottonwood Heights? What the? Okay, well. All you got to do is find where all the bougie people live because Trader Joe's is an indicator of gentrification. (laughs) Okay, sounds good. I was going to say, that's not really a place that I would go. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah but you gotta go do you and your family like fall treats um yeah i feel like my i mean i don't really care too much um for most things that are like pumpkin whatever but my wife likes uh like pumpkin chocolate chip what's it called like bread from that one bread place you know what i'm talking about <laughs> yeah great harvest yeah there it is <laughs> yeah and you gotta go to trader joe's they have their pumpkin brioche is really good. They have like a pumpkin muffin mix Ooh. that's also really good. They have like a pumpkin spread that we really like. Uh, they have caramel pumpkin popcorn. I don't think it's pumpkin. I think it's just like a car- salted caramel popcorn, but oh, it's wonderful. Well, I guess, I guess I'll have to talk to my wife and see if that's something that we want to do. We've been trying to figure out things to do with our kids, especially when the... You know, the fall season's coming on and it's getting colder. They can't really just play outside unless we bundle them up, I suppose. But trying to find things to do is going to be important. Also, like I've said, I think the last the last episode, she's just doing school, so we don't really have much time to do stuff. So when we do get time, we got to figure out stuff to do, and that'll be one of the things. Yeah, you can turn grocery shopping into a fun fall activity. Is it super expensive, though? No, I actually think... I mean, it depends on what your baseline is, but... I actually think Trader Joe's is very reasonably priced. All right. All right. We'll have to go check it out. I guess apparently it's an experience to go to a grocery store. (laughs) 
Yeah, if you, you know, Trader Joe's is wonderful. All right. Hey, I had a question that I wanted to ask you, especially in the spooky season. Shoot. And this is a question that I ask a lot of people just because I'm really curious to see what they would answer because I know what I would answer. If there was, or maybe I've actually asked you this question before, but I want to get it on the show. If there was a zombie apocalypse and it would last about a month and after the month ends, everything goes right back to normal. You remember everything, but everything goes back to normal. Would you experience, would you choose to, like the purge, would you choose to experience that zombie apocalypse absolutely not ah really yes why not why would i want to put myself through a zombie apocalypse yeah there it is i've definitely asked you this question before because i remember seeing that answer through text or something but why not because if everything's gonna go back to normal it'll be like it's fine like even if you died and turned to a zombie or got your head blown off like you're back to normal yeah but one if you remember everything there are going to be people in your life that made some choices that you did not agree with. <laughs> but, but maybe that's a good thing to do because then you could really just like cut off the people that you know aren't going to be <laughs> that aren't going to be there for you. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's like the ultimate friendship test. I would not want to get shot in the foot if I could then go back to normal. I just I life's already painful enough as it is sometimes. So why <laughs> that's true. Put myself through stuff like that. What about a week? Why would I want to live through a zombie apocalypse? What about a day? The day that it happens? No. Ah, oh, that's disappointing. I would do that in a heartbeat. I don't know. Maybe, maybe a day if I could get off of work. Maybe I could <laughs> really? go rummage through some Trader Joe's, eat all their eat all their stuff in a day. That's true. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people would cho- choose a day if I asked them that question. A lot of people do. Sometimes people say a week. I would do the full month, man. I would do a whole year. I would be fine with that. What is the benefit of that? There's not really a benefit. It's just I would be living out somewhat of a fantasy of mine. What is your fantasy to hunt zombies, be a zombie? Like, let's psychoanalyze this real quick. Now, I wouldn't want to live through this like for my entire life. It would be so somewhat of a video game experience to me, except like the most virtual, like the most real virtual reality ever. You can experience real pain, see real loved ones get killed, <laughs> be killed by real loved ones. Well, I'm, I'm super curious of how long I would actually last. That that's a big question in mind. How long would I personally last? Now these days I'm pretty out of shape, so I wouldn't last that long. <laughs> when I really started thinking of this question, I was in great shape, but still I'm I'm willing I'm willing to put myself through it. Also, I just uh, I really love the idea of like post like that's my some of my favorite movies and shows and stuff are based off of like the idea of a post apocalyptic world. And I think it's just so fascinating to live. Now, I love electronics way too much to actually like want to live in a world like that for more than a year. But I think a year would be, it'd be very interesting. I see no upside <laughs> to wanting to live in a post-apocalyptic world. The moment the zombie apocalypse happens or we go into atomic end of the world, just <laughs> let me die. I think it would be interesting to start like a... um. I don't know exactly what you'd call it. It wouldn't really be like a amusement. It wouldn't be an amusement park. It like an experience or whatever. Like the ultimate haunted house where you sign up for a full week and maybe there's not zombies, but it's just you live in an entire like city. We'd have to build an entire city where it's just totally dedicated to a post-apocalyptic 
like surrounding and, and, and city and everything. And you'd have to rummage for food and try to live for like an entire week and just see how it goes. I would never want to experience that. I feel like people would. I feel like there's people out there. I'm sure there are people that would want to. Okay. But no, the moment society collapses, I'm out of here. Take me out. <laughs> if I can't shower when I want to shower and eat food when I want to eat food, if I'm rummaging through dumpsters for garbage and I'm getting chased by zombies and people are hunting me down, just take me out. I'll tap out. Just you saying that, I know. I know that you would, your apartment would be the apartment that people would rummage through and then see, <laughs> it would see your wife dead on the bed and with you dead right next to her with the gun in your hand. <laughs> now, my wife would probably survive, but... Uh, oh, she would leave you. She'd be like, no, I have to survive. But you'd be like, no, just kill me. I just, I don't know why you'd want to live in a post-apocalyptic world. I feel like, I feel like you'd be able to, you'd do just fine. You'd do great. Yeah. It's not a matter of thriving. It's just a matter of like, what's the point? <laughs> okay. Because well, at that point, like all hope is lost. Maybe. There's no hope of like rebuilding. Mm, I mean, I'm sure you could rebuild, but it's just, I don't know. Not sure if it's worth it. Okay. Well, I have your answer. You know, lived a good life. You know, could get five guys when I wanted to get five guys. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Okay. Well, that was that was a good question. There's about a billion other things that I want I want to say, but I know that we gotta get into the <laughs> we can't just talk forever. All right. Well, there's the spooky question for the month of October. Why don't we go ahead and get into our film that we are discussing this month? The film is The Iron Giant. Uh, it is a film set in October of 1957, the same year Sputnik was launched, in a town called Rockwell, Maine. The synopsis is, a young boy befriends a giant robot from outer space that a paranoid government agent wants to destroy. It was directed by Brad Bird, written by Tim McCanleys, who also actually went on to do Secondhand Lions. I don't know if you've seen that movie. I love that movie. I think I have it on my list, actually, but I doubt we'll ever get to it because there's so many other good films. Uh, the movie was composed by Michael Kamen, I think. Common? I don't know. I didn't really look up any videos to see how everyone's names were uh, pronounced. Uh, the big actors are Eli Marienthal, who plays Hogarth Hughes. The Iron Giant is played by Vin Diesel. Dean McCoppin, the cool dude, is played by Harry Connick Jr. Annie Hughes, who's Hogarth's mom, is played by Jennifer Aniston. And Kent Mansley is played by Christopher McDonald. The budget was $50 million, and the box office earnings was $31.3 million, a.k.a. a huge flop. <laughs> really bad. But very critically acclaimed. It has like an 8 out of 10 on IMDb, and uh, I, think, I think a lot of people really enjoy this film. Now, Big T, this is your very first time watching the film. Just like Edward Scissorhands, I'm curious to see what your take is because in some ways this movie is kind of a lot like Edward Scissorhands as far as they're just kind of being a misunderstood character and people just kind of going after it in their own way in this film. A little more simplistic, but also kind of deep in some other areas if you choose to find it. What's your overall opinion on this film? Yeah, I think it's funny that you mentioned that it's similar to Edward Scissorhands because I feel like it's very similar <laughs> to Edward Scissorhands. A lot of the same themes, like I was I was trying to review some themes we could explore, but I was just kept on realizing we talked about this last time. Yeah. We talked about this last time. So uh, 
Maybe there's something there that those are the first two movies that you chose. Maybe you identify with the misunderstood stranger who <laughs> just wants to do art and be kind. I don't. Yeah, I don't know why. Because we were c- trying to figure out together what to do for last month, which was out of scissor hands. And then this time um, I picked out Iron Giant and then you're going to pick out the next film. And there was just something about I-, I was just looking through the list and I saw Iron Giant. and I'm like, yes, I want to watch this. And then, yeah, I was as I was watching, I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> like, is this just going to be a repeat episode? Like, uh, Big T's just going to grab all of his notes, copy and paste it, and then change all the names? <laughs> no, but I think, I think that it's good that we're reviewing two movies that have a lot of overlapping themes because mm. um, I think that we sort of have a foundation from the Edward Scissorhands episode, and then this one we can explore a little bit more nuance that sort of maybe builds off of that as well. But I did notice that there's a lot of uh, similar themes. But overall, I really um, I enjoyed the movie. I thought that the animation has held up pretty well. Oh, yeah. Also, I didn't realize until afterwards that some pretty big actors were in it. You know, Jennifer Aniston, Vin Diesel. I love that Vin Diesel voiced the robot. Yeah. All seven all seven words that it, the robot says. Like I saw an IMDb trivia that I think in total, besides like grunts and stuff, in total, the Iron Giant has 53 words or, or lines or I can't remember. That's it, though. Yeah. It just is so funny to me that Vin Diesel voiced the robot because Vin, was he famous then? I think he was somewhat famous. I mean, when was when did this movie come out? How do I not know? I think it's 1990. No. Or maybe that was maybe that was Edward Scissorhands. I don't know why I didn't write that down. That's really odd. The release date was 1999. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I was, how old was I? Three, nine, six? I was like six years old when this movie came out. Yeah, I was six or seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know why that really matters of how old we were when it came out, but, <laughs> but it's just interesting to know. Yeah, I don't know why I didn't write the, uh, I didn't write the date that it came out. I should. I should include that. Yeah, it it does have a lot of similar themes. I feel like what the huge difference is between this movie and Edward Scissorhands was it, it is mainly just the characters and the types of interactions that we have because we don't have the we don't have the combined character of the the women in the neighborhood or whatever. We have we only have really like three four main characters that are yeah like even the mom isn't really that present in the film. She's constantly working so. That's it. Really comes down to Hogarth, the Iron Giant, uh, Dean, and Kent Mansley. It's interesting. It's also based off of a book, right? Yeah. Yep. Based off of a book. I think it's called The Iron Man or something like that. Yeah, The Iron Man by Ted Hughes, which is the last name of both of the character or the the two characters in this film. Yeah. So I think if Wikipedia is correct, which it pretty much always is. Yeah. Hogarth is named after the last names of the illustrator and the author of the original book. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't see that in all the stuff that I was looking up. Yeah, I think the illustrator's last name was Hogarth, and then the author's last name is Hughes. So Hogarth Hughes is born. Let's let's actually get into that for just a second, because when I was looking up the trivia, I was really interested to find out that, again, the movie is directed by Brad Bird, who also goes on to do Incredibles and Incredibles 2. He does a great work. And I was interested to find out that he was inspired in part to make this movie as a memorial to his sister, Susan, who died at the hands of her husband by gun violence. And so, and I'm pretty much quoting IMDb, his pitch was this, what if a gun had a soul and didn't want to be a gun? 
And that was something that I was picking up, like without looking at the trivia, I was like, oh, this is, this feels really anti-war. This feels anti-violence and, 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 and whatnot. And then also on top of that, like in reality, like this is a cartoon movie and it's for kids in, in a way. I mean, there's some curse words in there that isn't necessarily towards kids. So it's sort of caught in between like little kids and maybe teenagers, I suppose, even adults. I feel as an adult, I still love this movie. I think it's amazing. But going deeper into that, Ted Hughes wrote the novel as a way of comforting his children after the suicide of their mother, Sylvia. So this movie is based off of really sad events. <laughs> yeah, Ted Hughes was married to Sylvia Plath, who was the author of The Bell Jar and a few other really uh, important and well-known works of literature as well. So The Bell Jar, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it's a semi-autobiographical story that follows Sylvia Plath as well. So uh, I didn't realize that Ted Hughes was married to Sylvia Plath, but um, yeah, it's interesting to read into some of the background to it. And I I do want to get into this because I don't know if you read this as well, but he, so you said he wrote it for, to comfort his children after his wife died by suicide. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Wikipedia goes on to say that it was specifically through the metaphor of the title character being able to reassemble itself after being damaged. Oh, clever. I mean, I know, yeah, I didn't really look into too much about the original book, mainly just looking at the movie. And I know that this movie doesn't really follow the book that closely. I think that's what I saw in the trivia as well. But it sounds like there are some themes that are carried throughout. Yeah, from my skimming of the internet (laughs) when I did research for this, um, it's pretty different. So the original book is about an iron giant obviously but um it's also anti-war in in a lot of its content but there's something about the iron giant fighting like a space dragon oh what the heck okay (laughs) yeah so pretty pretty different i think it's mainly just uh that overall theme of sort of anti-violence and then just the titular character as well yeah it's it's insane and even going even going further than that ted hughes died of a heart attack one year before the film's release oh i didn't know that so so he didn't even get to see the film i don't think what a bummer it's just this whole (laughs) all of this is just surrounded by death it makes sense for for all of the events that led up to them creating these works of art it's it it makes it far more like i i liked this movie as a kid you know it was just a good movie i enjoyed it it had a really interesting message um of or not really a message i just really saw the bond between hogarth and the giant and just really enjoyed that and i loved the little hijinks that they had and and whatnot and the whole superman theme as well of of you are who you choose to be i love that but as an adult it looking into the trivia and really asking some deeper questions and analyzing it from an adult perspective it goes way deeper and it's very interesting to watch and especially with the characters and looking into them and what makes them tick like it it goes way deeper than i really ever knew yeah i think that that's always a good sign that that's a sign of good art right when you can engage with a piece of art and depending on where you're at in your life at that time it has different messages and different meanings for you so you know you can watch this movie as a kid and just be like oh i love the adventures they go on and i love this message of i can be who i want to be and then as you get older and you watch it again and you sort of know more about the world 
You see the anti-violence, the anti-war, this idea of maybe distrust of government authorities or just officials and things like that. And you can sort of see different themes and messages. But I always think that that's a sign that something is a is a piece of good art when the messages you get from it sort of depend where you're at in your life. And I think that that's probably one of the reasons why it is considered a cult classic, right? It might not have been financially successful, but yeah. I think in regards to its impact on sort of culture, it has a, a staying and a lasting effect. Yeah. And there are a lot of little things in the movie that I know Brad Bird was trying to fit in there that was really trying to call back to his days at Disney. He tried doing a lot, actually. And and I found out that there's like a signature edition of this film as well, which has some extra stuff in there. I'm I'm now really curious to watch it and, and buy it or whatever, because there's a couple of extra scenes in there, I think, that actually goes back into where the giant came from and what was going on. It said that there was a little dream sequence of his conflict back at home and why he was why he crash landed on Earth in the first place, which I'm actually kind of glad that they didn't fit that into the theatrical release because I like the mystery of of where he came from. I think it adds a lot to the story. But I know that he was trying to put in a lot of Disney things as well. And I think when the hand is watching the television show, there's supposed to be like a little Disney cartoon or something that's that's supposed to be playing on there. I think about Tomorrowland or something. But Disney wouldn't let Brad Bird do it, which is really interesting. And and there's there's a couple of podcasts that I listen to. And one of them is called Knockback. And they do they're like a retro nostalgia podcast. And they did an episode on Don Bluth. And Don Bluth is a big animator that worked at Disney and also and then kind of left on bad terms. I guess there was a lot of animosity during Disney at the time because they weren't really paying attention to their animation department at all. And he left and started his own thing where he did like the that mouse one, the American Tale or Great American Tale and uh, The Secret of Nim. I think that's what it's called. Anyway, but at the time, Don Bluth was working there and apparently he was really full of himself and egotistical. He fired Brad Bird. Hmm. Yeah, and so it's interesting just... Just taking it all back, it's interesting to see how Brad Bird must have really enjoyed his time at Disney for him to want to put callbacks to it when in reality he left on or he was fired over basically just calling Don Bluth out for not respecting the lineage and heritage of of Disney in the first place, apparently. And Don Bluth didn't like it and fired him, Hmm. (laughs) which is really interesting to find out. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. But I I did want to mention as well, um, because <laughs> I wanted to I wanted to talk about the first time that I watched this. It was actually I had no idea that this was a movie that was coming out to theaters or anything. I didn't know about it at all. And the first time I watched it, it was on Cartoon Network, and it was like a huge marathon that lasted twenty four hours. You know, like a Christmas story. Like it just kept going all day, and I was I was just kind of in and out of the house. We lived. Back in the day out in uh, Finley, Washington, we lived like way out on kind of like a farmland. And so there was a ton of land and stuff to play on and, and whatever. And I was in and out the entire day. And I remember going out and in and then coming back and and the show would still be on. And I just kept thinking, this is the longest movie ever. <laughs> <laughs> so it just played on repeat. Yeah, exactly. It just kept going over. And I didn't really understand that that's a thing that was happening. I mean, I was probably, yeah, like seven or whatever. I didn't really understand. <laughs> and because uh, I kept coming in at different parts and I'm just like, what the heck, dude? This is like, a- I just want to watch some Dexter's Lab. Like, <laughs> why is this movie still going on? Exactly. I think I was just waiting for it to end. And I'm actually su- thinking about it now because it was on all day. I remember that for sure. I'm surprised that my parents even left it on. Like they should have turned off the TV at some point when I wasn't even in the room. But that was one thing that was 
it was just like a little memory that I had. But yeah, even I watched it with my kids too. I watched it twice and I watched it once with my kids and I was trying to put notes in and I didn't even notice some of the really deep things going on then because I was just trying to get through the movie. And then I watched it last night and gave myself time to pause and take notes and so I can really watch. There are a lot of subtle details in this film and going on to the trivia, that's something that Brad Bird was really, really happy about. Just like with the animation, they really wanted to make the world seem like it was lived in and filled with real people. Because when Annie is um, calling his son, telling him that he's she's going to be late and working at the diner, like as she's on the phone call with her son, the door like opens to the kitchen on her face. She's like, excuse me, or like, thank you, or something like that. It's just like all these weird little things. And when like Kent is on the phone with the general trying to explain what's going on and um, for the first time and saying that there's a big giant and, and that they got to take him seriously. I think the general laughs in his face and he looks over and there's like this oven mitt with like googly eyes, like weird, crazy eyes. And he flips it around. <laughs> it's just like all these weird little subtle things that they paid attention to in the animation to make it feel like these characters actually had personalities. You know, they had their own little things, especially with Hogarth eating the Twinkie with the whipped cream and stuffing it in and making it even bigger he didn't just eat a twinkie he he ate he ate it his way and he didn't just put the flashlight when he went to go check on the antenna up up top he flipped the flashlight and then put it in his back pocket there's just all these weird little subtle things that i think they did such a great job in this film i don't know were you able to pick up on any of that type of stuff uh i do remember some of those scenes i remember when they opened the door on the mom's face and when he stuffs the Twinkie with whipped cream and stuff. But um, that's interesting. I think that that adds a little bit of character to it, right? It makes it a little bit more realistic. And if I remember correctly too, they mixed animation types, right? So the Mm -hmm. giant is animated in a different style than the rest of, right? Yeah, yeah. He was uh, 3D animated and I think they came up with a specific program to... To achieve that and it's interesting i was reading as well that it wasn't just like they did the lines they wanted him to look you know kind of imperfect in a way so they even wrote the program to have like little jagged Hmm. areas in the straight lines to make sure that it didn't you know like he was weathered yeah and i feel like a lot of stuff like that right a lot of touches where in animation it's really easy to make things look really pretty and really nice and neat but it sounds like the team sort of took a lot of effort to make it feel like a the real world, which is cool. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's great. I think, too, so you've sort of talked about some of those subtle details, but there are also just a lot of scenes in this movie that I loved so much, like, that I really laughed at, that I thought were just really well done. So, like, the part where the when we first meet, Mansley and he's sort of making fun of the townspeople for believing that there's some <laughs> monster out there and then he sits in his car and it just immediately zooms out and <laughs> half of his car is eaten yeah. just perfect Dude. like the animation the zoom the rea- like everything was so well done it was so funny yeah that's that's another thing that I really noticed was it wasn't just like the animation of the scene there was really there was camera movement in it man like it's it's really interesting like I feel like I never noticed that in an in a well, it's probably all over the place, but maybe specifically because I was really watching this movie in depth, I noticed it for the first time. But there's like they there's camera panning like they're they're really treating it like like 
it's an actual cinematic film. And that was something that Brad Bird was getting flack for was he wanted to make it widescreen, but uh, Warner Brothers, I don't think really wanted him to do that, but he said, no, we're doing it. And it, it really gives off that cinematic feel. But yeah, that scene, I have, I have a quote. Uh, I have like favorite moments and under funny, I had Kent getting into his half eaten car. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and what was, I had to, I had to rewatch the scene because um, I caught like the tail end of something that he was muttering under his breath. And I was like, wait, what is he saying? And I go back and he says, um, well, he was talking to like one of the quote unquote simple folk. And according to him and saying, oh, this is going to be a big thing or something like that. It doesn't really matter. But what uh, Mansley says is <laughs> the biggest thing in this town is probably the homecoming queen. <laughs> That's terrible, dude. That's the word. He's such a jerk. And then, and then as he says that, like it zooms out, he says, Oh my gosh. <laughs> like, yeah, it's just, and that's that's specifically I I can't imagine anyone else playing this role other than Christopher McDonald because that line was delivered so perfectly and it's it's just um, if you don't know any other movies that he's from like you gotta check out Happy Gilmore because he's like the antagonist in that film as well I want to cover that movie at some point but it's just he just plays that jerk who just is kind of over exaggerating. In, in certain parts, it's, it's hilarious. But yeah, you're right. There are a lot of laugh out loud moments. I was I was really in, I was uh, I was happy to see that a lot of these jokes really held up over the years. Yeah, and I I kind of went into it, and when a lot of these scenes pop up, I'm like, this movie does not have the right to be this entertaining, like this funny in this moment. Two of the ones that really stick out to me is when Hogarth is they're eating dinner, and the hand comes into the house. And he's trying to like not have his mom see the hand or whatever. And so he's like, let's say a prayer or whatever. And he's talking to the hand and then turning it into phrases that you would say in a prayer and stuff. So, you know, he's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. We thank you. And then he's like yelling at the hand and he's like, stop, stop the devil from doing bad things. (laughs) Uh, You know, get out of here, Satan. (laughs) Uh, Just like it was so funny. Just that that whole scene and then the mom's reaction. And she's sort of like. That was really weird, but I just love how like accepting she is of just how weird and like free roaming her son is. Yeah. And then a little bit later, the scene, the bathroom scene is just oh yeah, stellar. Yes, I love like the grunting noise when he's trying to get the hand out the window, but um, they I think he's trying to use the bathroom, and then when she like breaks into the bathroom and he's sitting on the toilet like trying to pretend like he wasn't. Just trying to help a giant robot hand escape. <laughs> yeah, it's like a little privacy. It's so good, and that's another that's another subtle detail that I that I put in there because when she realizes that his pants are down and Kenton's looking through the door too, like a perv, and and then she goes to slam the door. Kent's face or Mansley's face is in the doorway, and so she slams the door on his face, and then he goes ah, like, and then goes back, and um, it's just so. They, she could have. They could have just had her slam the door, but they chose to put Kent's face in there. Yeah, I keep calling him Kent, but I feel like he's more referred to as Mansley. But whatever. It's so. Ah, this film is so good, and I will say though, I love pretty much all this film except, or not except, because it's still good. But I didn't enjoy it as much like the last twenty minutes because you kind of knew what was going to happen. I really like the whole idea of. Hogarth getting to know the giant and that all the dynamics and everything that's going on and all the exchanges and stuff with Kent was really interesting as well. And then you see like kind of the first occurrence of the giant 
seeing the dead deer and reacting to it and Hogarth saying that he died by the or the deer died by the gun and then his eyes go red and from that point as a kid I didn't really obviously pick up on it too much but from that point you just kind of know like oh we already know what the last 20 minutes is going to be everyone's going to find out Kent finally gets what he wants he finds the giant and then they go all crazy on him and uh yeah I, I think I think the reason why it's not as exciting for me the last 20 minutes although very good is because you just kind of know what's going to happen whereas all the other stuff before you don't know what's going to because it's so creative you have no idea how these characters are going to interact with each other and that's that's really where the movie shines for me Something that I want to I want to get your take on is like again going back to the the ending of the film. I I think I think it's still fine except it would be better if there was kind of a Christopher Nolan effect at the very end where it kind of left you wondering because they show the little bolt that was left afterwards, you know, after the explosion. Again, if you haven't watched this movie, I don't know why you're listening to this, but <laughs> but and and it has the little sensors like we saw earlier with the train and um, just kind of having all the parts. They all have apparently their own individual sensors so that they can rebuild each other um, or rebuild the giant again. And it goes off and we see the giant's eyes turn on at the very end. And we know that he's alive and, and well. What would you think if Hogarth was sleeping in the bed and then you just hear the sensor and then the movie ends. You think that would be stronger? Because I feel like it would have been a stronger ending. I mean, I think stronger is a very subjective word, right? I think people are going to think it's different for what it may be. But I actually really, really loved that Hogarth was awake and that he saw the bolt Hmm. and that he essentially freed the bolt, right? Hmm. I don't remember what he says, but it's something to the effect of like, go find him. And I really, really like that. All right. Um, because that was actually one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, why don't you think Hogarth followed the bolt? Because oh. right before that, in a different scene, he says he misses the Iron Giant when they're sitting at the statue. He says, I miss him. So I'm curious what your thoughts are. Why don't you think Hogarth followed the bolt if he missed him so much. Well, something really important to know about Hogarth is he is wiser beyond his years. Absolutely. He's he's really the only person in the town for most of the film that doesn't really feed into the paranoia that's going on. Again, this is this is going on in 1957. There's the Cold War, there's Russians, there's Sputnik, everyone's paranoid apparently. That's some that's definitely a point that they were driving home in this film. But he just he knew, I think personally that he just needed to let it go. And much like Edward Scissorhands, where everyone just, or Kim, I guess, leaves Edward back up to the castle because she doesn't want to subject him to this crazy community anymore. I think Hogarth thinks the exact same. He's like, I don't think anyone will understand. It is better if the military doesn't know that he's alive and we just need to let him be as painful as that might be for him. I think that was really important to him. Uh, to make sure that he stays safe. And I think that that whole interaction with the Iron Giant over the a one week span of time, I believe, I think it was it provided some sort of closure for him because we know and you don't really pay attention. Like, you know that the father figure isn't there in the house and you're not entirely sure like what happened. But you see later on when Kent is making sure that Hogarth doesn't warn Dean that he's going to go essentially capture the giant. Hogarth puts on a, like a pilot 
helmet and puts it on and then you look at the clock and you see that it's kind of it's going to start getting late soon and then it pans over and you see a picture of his dad who is next to a fighter you know a jet or something like that obviously he served in the air force at some point and he must have died while in combat or some training exercise i think that a lot of this was to provide some sort of closure for him and comfort and to really move past um maybe the the death of of his dad and i think he got it and i think that was also a part of you know i'm just gonna let it i'm gonna let him go you know yeah i i agree with you i think so the backstory, I believe, is that Hogarth's dad was a pilot and he died. So like you, I feel like you also saw the context clues that kind of lead to that. But so you kind of asked or you you mentioned that you would have liked the bolt to sort of just like beep and not really have Hogarth notice it. But I feel like it really completes his character arc that he sees this moment where if he wanted to he could go find the iron giant but like you said he's realized that the iron giant's need for safety is more important than hogarth's own needs and his own desires because when we first meet hogarth and he runs into the iron giant he immediately starts talking about how he's going to show it off he wants to call ripley's believe it or not and you see sort of this kind of like we mentioned with edward scissorhands right he's sort of starts to try to fulfill his own desires and his own needs and goals using that iron giant. But by the end of it, you see that he's learned his lesson, right? That he's vocalized that he misses the iron giant and that he wants to see him again. But he also, like you said, realizes this is going to bring pain to the iron giant if I try to meet my own needs. And I really, I really, really liked that. I thought it was a really sweet moment where we see Hogarth have some character growth and also like you said I think it really shows that Hogarth is wise for his years because I think even for us as adults in in the real world we often want things and we may consciously or unconsciously know that us wanting those things is going to harm another person but we make the argument that like, oh, well, it's my needs and I'm not directly harming the person. So it's not my fault if someone does something bad. But I really like that Hogarth has sort of realized like, OK, I might not be harming the Iron Giant if I find him, but I know that this is going to harm him. And I don't I love him. and I don't want him to be harmed. So I'm going to not have my needs met. And I think that that's like really a beautiful sort of self-sacrifice. All right. You made me a believer here. OK, I, I will take him letting the bolt going away but i would like to cut out the whole snow part where the bolts and all the different body parts are finding their way back to the giant i don't need to see the giant again i i do agree it's great to let the bolt go because i i think it does provide that closure for him and i think it's a really powerful statement for sure i don't need to see the giant again though it's fine yeah and i think that that's like valid right i i enjoy seeing the giant because i don't know the way that i kind of see it is in one context, the giant can represent misunderstood and marginalized and oppressed communities mm. who are oppressed by systems of power, right? I mean, in this case, it's the government that's oppressing and uh, harming the Iron Giant. So I like seeing the Iron Giant alive at the end because to me, it just sort of shows the resiliency of a lot of these um, communities, right? That mm -hmm. uh, they do suffer this really large scale systemic oppression but like they always bounce back and there's resiliency in that and there's beauty in the fact that like 
they will overcome. Yeah. No, yeah. It's I, I definitely as a kid, I loved seeing the giant again. I was like, yes, he's alive. Oh my gosh. And that kind of fed into my thought as a kid, like, oh, they're going to make a second one? Yeah. <laughs> Obviously they didn't. Um, and why would they if it was such a huge flop? Apparently, actually, it came out at the exact same day as The Sixth Sense. Mm. And so I think Brad Bird, he's he's said that uh, he kind of blames <laughs> the... He well, he blames it into he blames uh, the film not being a huge success in two for two different reasons. That the Sixth Sense came out at the same time, which was obviously super popular and huge, and then Warner Brothers didn't really give it a lot of funding and or uh, promotion. I think they only started promoting it like just a few months before the movie came out, which is really stupid. Yeah. And now we're living in a day where movies are like two years out, and we get a teaser trailer, and it's like what? Yeah, yeah. I, I it always makes me sad when creators of art have to sort of justify the worthiness of their art based on the money Mm. because like you mentioned uh the iron giant sort of has lived in our collective conscious for a while right i think there's a reference to it in like ready player one that came out a few years ago yeah like uh so there's definitely plenty of metrics where you could say oh the iron giant was successful it's a cult classic it's really well known so it always makes me sad but i understand you know when artists uh sort of see their piece of art as a flop because it didn't get attention or money and things but um obviously there's power and people see meaningfulness in iron giant because it has you know stuck around for a while i think the iron giant is a huge success for animation period i think it is a huge win for them it's um, it's amazing it's absolutely amazing to especially really go through the themes that they go through in an animation that was also really interesting as a kid to me to watch um huge triumph for sure i did want to i wanted to go to the giant and i think something that was discussed in the trivia was that something that was really important for them to show in the film was that the giant learns humanistic skills very quickly and the relationship between him and hogarth is it goes from like pet to friend to hero within a span of a week and that's something that we didn't really see too much in Edward Scissorhands. You just kind of seen as a tool, as we discussed on the last episode. And then when you go to this, it is more of a dynamic where it actually progresses in a, in a nice, positive way, at least between him and Hogarth. I mean, maybe with some of the arguments that we we're making against uh, or uh, for Edward being seen as, seen as a tool in Edward Scissorhands, um, you kind of see... Dean using the giant to make some of his art for him because it was easier (laughs) maybe or maybe it was just more of a I can kind of see it as sort of a friendship and just like okay can you do this and it seemed like the giant was genuinely excited about it like he was he was helping Dean out and then you see also Hogarth blasting him off in the car (laughs) spinning around but I think that kind of falls under the category of friend a little bit you know they're both like almost as if the giant is is older brother in a way and he's bigger than him and he can kind of you know spin him around and have fun and, and whatnot and then and then yeah it progresses at the end towards hero and he really loves him and he he doesn't want to see him go it's it's a really great progression of 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 friendship that we missed in the last film that we discussed. Yeah, I agree. I think that uh, you see 
the Iron Giant sort of fulfilled different relationships with Hogarth, like you said. I think you we sort of talked about the Iron Giant as a father figure, as a friend, as an older brother, and you do sort of see that closure for Hogarth there at the end because he is playing with friends, right, at the park. Um, yeah. So At the end, yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah, so I think that, like, you mentioned Hogarth really does get sort of like a sense of closure, and you do see that he has been changed by this relationship with the Iron Giant, which is good to see. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And it seems like Annie, the mom, must have gotten a little bit of closure as well because I don't even, it didn't seem like she was really trying to do anything in the way of like dating. (laughs) And she meets Dean and he's got, well, I mean, as a parent, it would be really important to make sure that a new, um, you know, father figure or whatever would be able to show appreciation for their son. Right. So I think that Dean was obviously a no brainer. Plus, he's he's one of the most handsome cartoon characters you've ever seen with that soul patch. But she she must receive some kind of closure as well, because at the end of the movie, they they're obviously together because I think she calls him honey. And, you know, this is your best work yet, honey. And um, also, I just wanted to say as a kid, I want to I want to say that Annie Hughes was probably my first crush. <laughs> I, I thought that she was really really cute and i'm just like man what a cute mom that's funny yeah but i i want to i want to talk a little bit about about hogarth and kent or mansley now watching it as a kid and watching it with my kids mansley was just the bad guy you know he's a jerk he's egotistical totally self-serving in every single way thinks he's above everyone else watching it last night and pausing and really watching the animation, I truly believe that Kent is an adult Hogarth who hasn't ever felt the loss of life and had, you know, just different experiences in general that has led him to be so egotistical. And there's a specific scene that we already talked about a little bit where Hogarth is trying to figure out what to do with the giant, whether he should say it or not, or tell people or not, um, how he should hide him, blah, blah, blah. And there's a specific part where, a specific animated part where he puts his finger up in the air and twirls around and while he's saying something, and then it immediately cuts mid-twirl to Mansley doing the exact same twirl, explaining to the mayor and the police how they should handle this whole situation. And if you listen to the dialogue, and I wonder, I, oh, I want so bad to figure out if this was intended or not. They talk almost the exact same way. They have a lot of the same mannerisms. Like they have very similar personalities just with different outlooks on life. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's really interesting you mentioned that because I remember when I was watching this movie, I was just thinking Mansley and Hogarth have the same exact hair color. Yeah. And I was thinking, why would the animators make that choice because when you you want your characters to stand out and be different from each other be noticeable right so i feel like that was a very intentional decision to make them even look the same Mm -hmm. kind of because i don't know are you saying that you think that mansley is like literally just an adult like literally an adult version of hogarth from like another dimension or from the future or just like sort of symbolically him as an adult symbolically there was a moment where i was like i mean it is a robot is there weird time travel i don't think so though i don't i don't yeah but no i i agree with you i think that 
there are some there are a little too many similarities between the two of them to think that it wasn't done intentionally. Yeah, I agree. For sure. And I think that kind of leads into a question I wanted to ask you. Do it. Was why did Mansley want to destroy the robot so badly? I so this kind of for me personally, looking at the film, it seems like he's a laughing stock to the rest of, you know, like to the general and all the military people and all that stuff. He's not really taken seriously. He he shows up in the town for the first time and he is super high and mighty and putting this town down, saying that there are oh, nothing big could ever. The biggest thing in this town is probably the homecoming queen. Right. He he does. He totally belittles the town every every chance that he gets and, until he sees evidence of the giant being real for the first time. Then you start seeing him talk to the general and looking at the oven mitt with the crazy eyes and the general laughing at him. You can tell how frantic he is when he's talking to him. He probably hasn't had a win in a very long time. And he is, it's probably a a huge mystery why he even has a job there in the first place because it doesn't seem like anyone respects him whatsoever. So I think what really it comes down to is the fact that he just desperately needs a win. And he will do anything in his power to make it happen. And that's why he wants to kill him so bad, especially with, and this was discussed in the, uh, in the trivia that I was looking through, they really wanted to drive home the idea of paranoia in this world, you know, because of all the surrounding events that are going on in the world, you see in the newspaper clippings, it's constant like doom and, and catastrophe. Exactly. And and that's why you wanted to open up with showing Sputnik in the air or in outer space um, surrounding the Earth was to just immediately start off the movie with Sputnik. This is what's going on. Everyone's paranoid. And I mean, even the kids in the classroom, they're watching a, a duck and cover uh, movie so that they know what to do if a bomb drops down, which is freaking hilarious, by the way, because you're going to die. And yet in the animated film that they're watching, the kid or whoever's under the desk or something, and literally the entire earth around them is exploded, except for that one area that they ducked in. It's the stupidest thing. It's 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 also given off just a, like you can really tell that they're trying to make you feel comfort, even though you're probably going to die anyway. And the fact that they're even showing that in the classrooms also shows how paranoid everyone is. So there was just no getting around it in, in Mansley's eyes. He just he needed the win and he needed to kill this thing because he's paranoid. He has no hope for the world or anything. I don't know. Yeah, I think that there's like a lot in there. I think that there's this idea of control, right? That people want to feel like they're in control of their own destinies and their own paths forward. And that's kind of, you see that in the animation of the desk and it's not the, it's the only thing not blown up. You even see that when the atomic bomb is, or the bomb is headed towards the town, right? The mom asks Dean, should we find a fallout shelter? And Dean's like, it's pointless. It doesn't matter. And so I think that you, there's definitely this sort of undercurrent of control and how not having control leads to paranoia and can lead to violence. But I think something you said is really important and really noticeable. And it's this idea that Mansley really wants a win. And I thought it was really interesting because when you first meet Mansley in this movie, he's actually a skeptic, right? He doesn't, think that there's a giant out there. He's like, this is a really weird investigation. Big things happen in big places. And this town is not a big place. I don't want to be here. And then you kind of subtly, but very quickly see him descend into like 
not only do I think this thing is real, but I also need to destroy it. And you have that scene in the diner where he's talking to Hogarth and he's like, when you don't understand something, you have to hurt it or kill it or whatever. And all I know is we're not the ones that made this thing. And that means it wants to hurt us or whatever. And to me, it kind of, it reminds me of toxic masculinity in a sense, right? And that Mansley is so desperate to get a win, right? He wants to look valid and he wants to look important and like he's done something successful. And he turns to violence to to get that reward, right? He sees that his stature as a man or as a government agent is sort of wrapped up in how much violence and how much harm he can cause to this giant. Mm. And he sees it sort of as like a victory or something that he needs to conquer when Hogarth doesn't. Mm. He just sees a friend, right? And I think what's really important too is that you see that this mindset that Mansley has that, you know, I have to prove my worth, I have to prove that I'm this macho government agent, actually not only harms the giant and almost gets an entire town of people killed, it also harms him, right? He runs it he tries to run away in the car and like immediately gets in a car accident and then we assume he's probably been arrested or whatever but i think it's really interesting that you see sort of this really dangerous collusion between his what i would call toxic masculinity sort of needing to prove himself get combined with government paranoia and it leads to violence and it almost kills an entire town of people and just like when we let sort of these really negative components of society go unchallenged that we can cause a lot of harm that doesn't need to happen. No, yeah, for sure. Just going to that whole, I don't, I don't even understand what's going on in his head. I guess maybe just knowing Mansley and the way that he feels about everything and that toxic masculinity, that whole scene where they're trying to figure out whether or not they're going to shoot the, the, the missile towards the town uh, or towards the giant and you can see at the very last second you know the 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 general is going to go ahead and just leave it be and then mansley looks at the giant and the giant looks at him like you know with the angry eyes in a way or or something like that and he feels immediately like he's challenged he's been challenged now and he needs to he needs to defeat this thing right now otherwise I don't even know the giant's going to kill him. I have no idea what's going on through through his head, really. It's it's insane how he really got to that point in his mind where he needs to send this missile out now with complete disregard for the entire town for himself. <laughs> Screw my country. That <laughs> so just <sighs> the Mansley character is just the worst. It's I just remember being a kid and immediately hating that man. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that that's what we're, we're supposed to not like him, right? He's definitely the quote-unquote villain. But yeah, even when he's like, we have to bomb the, we have to kill it, we have to kill it. And the general is like, you want us to bomb ourselves in order to kill it? Right. And I think that there's this idea, right, of like, we are so eager and so desperate to hurt quote-unquote the other that we're not even slowing down and paying attention to the harm that it's causing ourselves. Mm. And I think that there are a few other elements of the movie where we see that play out. And so that's that's one of the themes I wanted to talk about. We can jump to another topic if you want. But this idea of inaction causing self-destruction. Mm. Because what I thought was so interesting was towards the end of the movie. And it's funny you said you didn't like the last 20 minutes because 
I feel like at least thematically and in regard to like the messages you get, the last 20 minutes are really, really crucial in getting across a lot of those messages. But well, not that I didn't like it. It's just it wasn't as I didn't enjoy it as much. It's more predictable. Yeah, it's more predictable. But the part where the kids are on the roof and they're like looking at the giant, right? And then they fall and they're about to die. And then the Iron Giant runs and he saves them. And essentially the entire town, everyone in that area, sees the Iron Giant save two children. Like they know that he's a good guy, I guess. He's willing to save children right and then the army comes in and their guns are blazing shooting at the giant and stuff and you don't see anyone in the town try to stop this right you don't see anybody try to defend the giant it's really like dean annie or Anne, the mom and hogarth who are like hey we need to stop you know trying to kill this giant but none of the townspeople who literally just witnessed the giant save two children speak out against the government shooting all these missiles and stuff. And I think that that to me is really interesting because they don't speak out against the government launching all these missiles. And that eventually results in a bomb getting sent to their town. And I think it sort of highlights this idea that when we don't speak out against quote unquote evil that doesn't directly impact us, then it can come back to harm us as individuals, but it always comes back to harm the person that's being targeted. And we see that when the iron giant eventually dies, right? In quotes there, because he doesn't right. actually die. But so I think that it's easy to see Mansley and the army as the bad guys here. But I think we also have to look at the townspeople who didn't defend them, who were silent. And I think that we have to really sit with the fact that they were complicit in a lot of this violence that was being enacted towards the giant and they were not willing to defend someone who showed that he was willing to save children's life. And I think it's interesting too that Hogarth is the only one who puts himself in jeopardy to save the Iron Giant. He literally puts himself in front of the gun and even his mom and Dean aren't willing to sacrifice themselves to do that. They sort of stand off to the side and they talk about telling the general like, oh, we need to stop this or whatever. But out of literally everyone in this entire town, Hogarth is the only one who puts his own safety at risk in order to save the Iron Giant. And I think that goes back to your earlier comment about Hogarth being really wise. He's the only one we see sort of sacrificing his privilege of safety in order to help a targeted individual. Right. And Well, I mean, you could see with Hogarth really holding on to that pilot helmet i think i think with the experience of losing his dad i think he's probably had it in his mind for a long time that he would he he would have done anything to save his his dad from dying you know and i feel like that really plays a part in this whole um, event that's going on at the last part of the film is he he would do anything to save the giant because he's really he's really looked at him as a, a probably one of his best friends if not his best friend of all time of course at the very end of the film he all of a sudden has friends which goes to yeah obviously the inaction of the people but they definitely at some point finally saw the giant as a friendly you know okay maybe not necessarily as a friend but okay this guy he's not gonna kill us i don't think because he just saved these two kids maybe he's not as bad as everyone's making it out to be and something that i wanted to bring up with Hogarth also, and the fact that he goes, and he's really the only one that's willing to go save the giant and put himself in harm's way to do that, 
he sees everything different. And that's something that is showed at the very beginning of the film because he just trapped this raccoon or whatever the heck it was, or squirrel, and wants to show his mom, you know, needs a home. And that's why it goes back to the the giant being viewed as a pet at the beginning because he sees him as something that needs to be helped, especially with the giant eating whatever that the transformer or whatever from, you know, the uh, like, what's it called? That power place, <laughs> whatever, dude. And he really sees him cry out when he's eating that, you know, big battery essentially and, and, and screaming out in pain. He wants to help the giant and he sees him differently. And, and then going beyond that into the classroom and all those kids are talking about the, you know, how they need to kill this thing immediately. Have you seen it? Blah, blah, blah. And that kind of gets into a theme of parents just kind of going up like I'm sure that that's something that they learn from their parents because their parents are probably talking about the giant and saying that they need to kill this robot thing but putting that aside for a second when you look at Hogarth drawing the giant on his desk the giant has a straight mouth it is left to right straight line no real accents to it right you can't really see there's there's no way really to get emotion out of the robot only through his eyes but when he draws the giant he draws his mouth in a frowny face, and he makes him look sad. He's the only one that sees the giant look sad, like it actually has emotion, like it actually has a soul, that he needs to save it and he needs to help it because it is on a strange planet, and it clearly doesn't know, he doesn't know what to do, and he needs to teach it and he needs to help it. And so that's, that's another reason why I think he steps in and he goes to save the giant. And puts himself in harm's way because it's not fair for the giant to be treated like this. Yeah, and I think too, I mean, maybe this is trying to read too much into a a cartoon. But I think that maybe Hogarth recognizes that his own actions, no matter how well-meaning they were, they sort of resulted in this Iron Giant being attacked. And he's trying to sort of remedy that and fix that because he knows that... He sort of took the giant home and brought him towards civilization and society. And that sort of caused a domino effect where the giant was then being targeted. And I could see that Hogarth's action of putting his own safety on the line in order to sort of remedy harm that he unintentionally caused is also a potential representation there. But I don't know. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's really interesting to look at that. I I want to get in a little bit to the giant and what you think. Well, okay. So watching this film and not looking through the trivia, I was really curious to see where the giant even came from, what the dent is from, probably just hitting the earth. I don't know. And his, his memory being lost, he has no idea what's really going on. And the fact that the giant didn't really know what to do on its own, all it really knew was to find metal and eat it. That's it. That's all we really know about the giant. It needs metal to eat. It makes you really wonder, like, where did he come from? And what would have driven him out of wherever he was? But looking into it and and knowing more about the trivia, apparently he had a home planet and there was some kind of conflict. And uh, and that's whatever the conflict was, it, it drove him out of his, his planet and whatever battle he was in. Because it is really interesting to look at him and some of the certain or some of the um, specific things that happen in the film, the fact that his eyes go red when he sees weapons, he immediately goes into defense mode and he's got to go attack it. So he was built that way, right? He was built to do that. 
unless there's some sort of procreation on his home planet somehow. And, and I have no idea how that, but I'm assuming he was assembled and he was built for the sole purpose of following orders and, and um, attacking whatever's attacking him or people that are around him. And on top of that, when, just a really subtle thing, when they're trying to figure out a, a, a place for, or some metal for the giant, him and Hogarth, to eat, they go and they see like an old car and then Dean comes up and he tows it away. And when the, they see the car coming, he's like, oh, we need to hide. The giant immediately goes into a salute. That's his first reaction is to go into a salute and then hold the burger, which is just a funny comedic thing. But he goes into a salute. So he is, you know that he's built to, to obey orders probably and destroy whatever's starting to attack them. And you can see that because he has like a billion different types of weapons on him. Like it's insane at the very end. Like he's got 20 different weapons, which apparently was a huge challenging part for the animators to do just to figure out what to even do weapon wise. But it's just interesting to see all that and and where he even come from, came from. And it makes you want to know what's going on on the home planet and uh, why he is the way that he, why he is the way that he is. I don't know. What did you take from that? Yeah. I'm with you. I, I'm glad that they don't show us where the giant is from and we don't get that backstory because I think that it adds a little bit more of a mystique yes. to his character. What I think is interesting, and as you were talking, this sort of got me thinking, was one of the central themes is like you are what you choose to be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which I think most of us would agree with to an extent. But what I find really interesting is that the Iron Giant wants to be friendly and nice and just kind of hang out with Hogarth and help do art and stuff. But the society around him forces him to be something that he doesn't want to be, right? Like, and Dean says this, he says he only attacks in defense. And I think that I want to articulate this well, but I think that there's this sort of really rainbow unicorns type of view where we're like, oh, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Like if you want to be a billionaire, you just have to work hard. And like all it is is like an internal locus of power, right? Like you have the power to control everything that happens in your life. And then we see the Iron Giant and he doesn't. He's very much restricted by society. And I think that we see that a lot, especially I I would say in regards to poverty, we see a lot of people like, oh, if you don't want to be poor, just like work hard and don't be poor. Like you can choose not to be poor. Where in reality, if you actually view the world and the experiences of people in that situation, you realize like, oh, there's actually a lot of systemic factors at play that really restrict people's ability. It's not just about how hard someone's willing to work. Like there's a lot of external factors that restrict and force people into certain paths. And you see that with the Iron Giant where he wants to be nice and he is really nice and he is really sweet with Hogarth. And then society, the military gets in there and because of the military's actions, he's sort of forced into this violence. And then, I mean, eventually he's able to sort of like get out of it with Hogarth, but... I think there's something to be said there where, yes, we can choose who we want to be to an extent, but we also have to acknowledge that a lot of things in our own personal lives aren't under our our own control. And that sort of goes back to the idea, too, of, you know, finding bomb shelters when you'd actually be obliterated or hiding under a desk and stuff. So this idea of control and 
like how much control do we have over our own lives and how much of that is sort of just this illusion or this mirage that we sort of feed ourselves because it feels good that we can be in control of our lives when things are going well. But then when things start to go bad, we realize like, oh, you know what? I actually don't have as much control as I want. When you were talking, it reminded me of one of the big uh, things that we talked about with Edward Scissorhands where he's trying so hard to create beauty. And one of the kind of uh, debates that we were somewhat having of why would he destroy you know, the hallway and whatnot, when that's something that I feel like you should know that you shouldn't be doing if you're, you know, destroying your friend's house. And, and one of the points that you were making is that everyone's, everyone is trying to treat him like he's this monster and he's so sick of it that he decides, okay, well then I'm going to give them exactly what they want. If this is what they want, then I'm going to give it to them. And you see that with the giant as, as you were talking, he, he does make the conscious decision when he's flying in the air with Hogarth to turn off the red eyes because the jets are right there. He's he, he wants to go in attack mode, but he says no, and he waves it away, and, and he continues flying. It isn't until he's struck down and it looks like Hogarth is dead that he decides to go full attack mode. And something really interesting there, and going back to the dead deer, is he has this insane... Not insane. He has this immense love and appreciation for life. He does not want anything to die. That definitely goes back to probably whatever conflict he was going through that drove him to Earth in the first place. He's probably seen a lot of friends and family or whatever die, and it makes him insanely sad. And he looks at the deer, it makes him really sad. He looks at the gun, and he wants to kill it or kill whoever was responsible um, for using the gun, potentially. Because he wants to get rid of whatever it was that killed this this beauty that he has seen in the world. And obviously his best friend and comrade, in a way, over the you know past few days, Hogarth, looks like he's dead. It's interesting to look at one of the animation choices that they had. Because he has that dent the entire film until right then. He decides to push it out. And I'm wondering if that den is responsible for him not knowing that past life, what drove him out and all those fallen, you know, friends and family on his home planet and him pushing out that dent lets it floods all of the feelings in all of his rage, all of his anger, Hogarth's dead right there. And he regains his memory potentially. I've, that's how I take it. And he decides to let it all in and go in full attack mode because if these people want a monster, and they've just killed the only thing that I really cared about right now, I'm going to go full monster, and they are dead. So that's another thing. It's it's really interesting to see him make that conscious decision. He, he kind of chose in that moment. <laughs> like, this is what I'm going to be then. Because the, just because of my own interpretation of looking at him push out that dent, when he could have easily pushed out that dent a long time ago, I think. But he decides to do it right then and go in full attack mode. So... I So when I watched this movie, I didn't think that it was a conscious decision to push out the dent. I thought it was sort of like a subconscious reaction, like sort of like a knee-jerk reaction. But Maybe. May, I mean, maybe I missed something in the conscious. I think either way, regardless of if it's conscious or sort of like a knee-jerk reaction to the violence that he's seeing, it is still really interesting because even when the Iron Giant goes full killer weapon mode... I think, at least for the most part, if not the entire time, he's only attacking the military, right? True. And it's literally the military that is the threat 
to the town. The giant is never a threat to anyone besides the people that are trying to kill him. But the military who are, you know, quote unquote, trying to save the town or save the country literally are the ones that are going to blow the people up that they're trying to save. And you even see Mansley say that when he's interrogating Hogarth, he says something along the lines of like, I am able to do whatever I want if I think it's for like the best interest or the protection of people. But the irony of like the people who are saying that then doing more harm and damage than the thing that they're trying to like kill, Mm. which I think is really interesting. Yeah. Going off of that, it, or just talking about how he's really only targeting the military. I think that just goes back to where he was, how he was designed. He's only designed to kill whatever's, whatever's the threat. He's not going to attack anything else. It's really, really interesting detail that you can pull from that. Yeah. Are you looking at something to say or? Well, I'm, well, no, I was just trying to figure out, you can keep talking. I was just trying to figure out if it was something that I wanted to insert right now. I I don't think it really fits right now so I'll, I'll move on our ad from our sponsors <laughs> you want to fit that in uh today we're sponsored by ourselves <laughs> um no speaking of the end scene where the iron giant has an interaction with the military um i wanted to talk a little bit about this idea that we put the burden on marginalized and oppressed communities to be their own saviors because there's a part and i think it's hogarth who says this I'm not sure though, but one of the humans says, we got to show them you're good, talking to the Iron Giant, saying, you know, we got to show these humans who are attacking you that you're a good being. But the irony is that they've already done that. They've already shown that the Iron Giant is good, right? He's literally played with Hogarth, had no problems. He's made art, had no problems. Well, he eats everyone's antennas, but yeah. (laughs) <laughs> True, but I mean, no bodily harm to humans, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? But then the the onus of sort of proving one's worthiness to live or whatever it may be is put on the Iron Giant when really it should be put on the people that are attacking him and trying to do harm and trying to kill him. And it goes so far that the Iron Giant has to sacrifice himself in order to save the very people who didn't even want to save him and who are actually trying to kill him. And I think that that, to me, is a really important nuance that we see here that, unfortunately, because of the way that society is constructed and particularly this community and this scene where the Iron Giant, who's actually the one being attacked and threatened, is the one who has to sacrifice himself. He's the one that has to, he loses either way, right? He either gets blown up by the atomic bomb or he gets blown up because he flies away. And so I think that there's something to be said about the fact that communities that are being targeted or oppressed or people who are being marginalized, we often sort of require them to do their own salvation when in reality we should be targeting the systems that are oppressing them. As you were saying that, it just, it, it reminded me of what you were talking about earlier with the inactivity, I guess, of, of, you know, their actions. They're not really doing anything. I wanted to expand on that just a little bit with an example, another example of when Mansley is basically, oh, what's, what's the word? Like harassing or not, not, not harassing. Interrogating. No, not interrogating, not assaulting either. What's, what's like the lesser form of assault? Attacking? Frick. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. What's, what context? Are you talking about just specifically in that store when he's eating the chocolax uh thing and then he just starts like basically like verbally attacking i guess that's what i'll say he basically starts verbally attacking hogarth and everyone in the store is just watching 
I feel like these days someone would have stepped in and been like, yo, what are you, what are you doing? Like, he's just a kid. What are you, like, get away from him. And then immediately just kick him out of the store. Mansley would have been kicked out in a heartbeat. You would hope so. I mean, I guess it depends on where you're living. Maybe. I have no idea. But yeah, that that's another, that's kind of a moment in that film early on where you just kind of get a taste of how these people are going to be at the end where they're not really going to do much. They're just kind of standing around and, and just watching it. And probably panic because they might die <laughs> from the military, like running them over. It's also interesting that you put most of the blame on the military, which I think a lot of it is. But going farther than that, it's really it's really Mansley because the military seemed like they would have stopped if they knew that Hogarth. That's something that we didn't really discuss. The fact that Hogarth is in his hands, and and Dean is saying that it's like the kids with him, and Mansley. What is going on with this guy, dude? What's going on in his head where he takes that information and says, no, that's fine. The kid's dead. Yeah. Like, is he actually seeing the kid as already dead because the giant is a monster to him? Or does he not care because he needs to win? Yeah, I think that it's he's so blinded by his need to be seen as a successful man and a successful federal agent that he is willing to sacrifice anyone else's life, not his own, because when his own life is threatened, he tries to run away. But he's willing to sacrifice anyone else's life in order to get the quote-unquote win that he needs. Mm. And I think it is it is important to highlight that, yes, Mansley is the one who calls in the bomb, right? But so he, there is some individual responsibility there, but that situation would have been literally impossible had not the what I will call the military industrial complex have reacted the way that they did. Right. Because the only reason an individual was able to send a literal bomb to a town full of people is because the system around him allowed for that to happen. Right. Because if the military, they brought everyone. Yeah. Yeah. If the military had been like, Hey, there's this unknown creature moving around. Let's maybe go do some espionage or maybe let's go, not send 5,000 tanks to a little small town and (laughs) let's not escalate a situation that we don't need to escalate, then Mansley wouldn't have even been able to send a bomb to the town. So I think that it is important to acknowledge that Mansley does have individual responsibility, but we also need to highlight that there is a system built around him that allowed for this to happen. And I think kind of going off of that, we do not see the system being held responsible at all. In fact, the system is sort of portrayed at the end as like having learned their lesson, right? The general sends Hogarth the little bolt and is like, this is all we could find of him. But what I want to know was who was court-martialed, you know, who sat down and said, hey, we literally almost blew an entire city off of the face of the earth. Let's maybe question how that was allowed to happen, you know? True. And we don't see any of that we don't see anyone be held responsible for acts of violence and potential severe acts of violence. And I think that we see that a lot in real life too, right? Where a system is at play and then something bad happens and one or two people maybe go to jail or are punished, but the system of oppression and abuse is largely held intact because for whatever reason, the systemic issues aren't addressed. True. And I guess supporting your argument even further is there's also, I mean, Dean's yelling. Dean's yelling that the kid is with him. It's not like the other soldiers couldn't have heard that. And they could have easily just gone up to Mansley and said, he just said that there's a kid. Like, what are you talking about? 
and that the the giant is reacting defensively. I don't I don't understand why you're not relaying that information. So yeah, I guess I guess you can use that as well to fuel the the argument that the whole military is really um, to blame. Really, the like the the starting point is Mansley, and then it just no one really does anything. There's a, like no checks and balances between any of that. It's just all relayed between Mansley to the general, which is a little odd. And maybe, I don't know if you would see it in a different way. It's, it kind of like weakens that whole relationship between the two because Mansley is seen as a laughingstock, I think, for the early part of the film. And then somehow something has changed. I guess I guess seeing the giant in the first, first place, maybe that gave the military or gave the general all the trust that he needed in Mansley. I don't know, but I feel like I would have been a little skeptical of him <laughs> just with the with the way that he was reacting to everything and how Yeah. I mean also real life history has shown us that the military needs very little motivation to commit horrendous crimes. So I think there's also something to be said where I mean, the general literally says, send me a picture and I'll have the military there tomorrow, right? Like, there is this sort of intrigue or tantalizing component of holding so much power. And the military is essentially saying, like, give us the smallest reason to send an army to this small town and we'll do it, right? And I think that that is also something that's problematic where often when people have power, they overreact to something that doesn't require that much force or violence. Right. Which is which is the big difference between Mansley and Hogarth and <laughs> going back to them basically being the same person just with different outcomes is well, I guess in a way actually Hogarth he does enjoy um being more intelligent than everyone else. I think one of the kids calls him Point Dexter or something like that. I don't, I don't know. But, oh, and then he has a rant with Dean when he's all hopped up on the coffee. And he's just like, if everyone just did their homework, then they would be as smart as me or something like that. Like, I can't remember exactly what he says. But it's interesting to see how, although Hogarth also kind of not necessarily gets high, but enjoys being more intelligent. I think he, he I think he likes having that intelligence. It's not necessarily the power that's driving him. It's, it's just... It's just being wiser, and I think that's really all that matters. And he doesn't understand why everyone else doesn't really understand <laughs> how to do things or how to look at the world. But he doesn't go out of his way to really put that on the world as well and blame everyone and and whatever because he's he's too busy looking for animals to save. But that's 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 a very interesting distinction between the two for sure. Yeah, we've been talking um, a little bit about the ending, right? Of the Iron Giant having to fly off into the sky in order to divert the bomb from the town. And I wanted to bring it back to what we talked about at the very beginning. So the author of the original story, Hughes, we talked about how he wrote it sort of in response to Sylvia Plath dying by suicide. Yeah. And with that lens of the original story being a commentary or a reaction to suicide, what... Do you see what do you see this movie? What commentary do you feel like Iron Giant is making on suicide, or do you feel like it's moved away from that and it's not really about that right now? Yeah, personally, I feel like it moved away from it because just looking through the trivia and, and seeing that this movie takes a lot of liberties, you know, away from the book, it kind of has some core themes in there, but like with the robot rebuilding himself. But I feel like 
I feel like at that point, it's like it could be useful. Like Brad Bird kept that in there because it would be useful for people maybe going through something where, you know, you should be able to rebuild yourself after some kind of horrific event potentially. But I, th- I think it does move away in it that it really does change the commentary to violence and anti-violence and really choosing for yourself who you want to be. And especially going back to his pitch of, you know, what if a gun had a soul and it didn't want to be a gun, but everyone's trying to use it as a gun. Um, I think it really does um, just kind of go more towards that. Yeah, I think I definitely agree with you that this movie is about violence and anti-violence. I do think that it's easy for us to when we typically think about violence, we think about like guns and wars and massacres and like bloodshed and really violent images. Right. Sure. But I also think that and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, systemic failures can cause violence that is silent. And so when I read that the original story was sort of a commentary or a reaction to suicide, that I I was trying to just sort of sit with that concept and really think through like what this may be because I agree with you. I don't I don't know if necessarily the movie is a commentary on suicide or is trying to connect it to that or whatever, but I like we talked about in the previous episode, I think one of the great things about art is that you can sort of create multiple interpretations. And so when I was sitting with this idea of like, what is this movie's commentary or lessons to us about suicide? I think one thing that's really clear is that the iron giant in a sense does die by suicide, Mm. right? Because he chooses to fly off. Um, I mean, obviously he doesn't actually die because we see at the end that he is still alive likely, but in a sense he does sort of have to like quote unquote kill himself and he flies off and he is exploded by the bomb or whatever maybe may be. But what I think is really interesting is that he wouldn't have had to die by suicide in that sense if society had done its job to protect him, if people had spoken up for him, if someone had stopped the military, if the military hadn't sent all these weapons there. And I think that to me, making or trying to find this connection, which again, maybe it's not even intentional, but this is just sort of how I was thinking about it, was this idea of how many deaths and how many suicides are caused because of failures in society, right? If you think about like people who die from homelessness or who die from hunger, and they're not these like really violent acts of aggression and uh, anger, but they're sort of systemic failures that lead to death. And to me, that was sort of the commentary that I saw was that the quote unquote death of the Iron Giant wouldn't have even been necessary if society had been functioning correctly. And this idea of we're sort of all connected in society, whether we like it or not, and we can try to stand up for people and help people who may be suffering that uh, we might not be seeing at the time, especially. It is a little different, I would say, though, because, well, I mean, when you look at Edward Scissorhands, he looks like a human. When you look at the Iron Giant, he's a huge robot. Also, and and no one's really come in contact with a robot before, especially in 1957. Uh, or most people haven't today, anyway. There's robots now. Which that we know of. Yeah. <laughs> now you're freaking me out. Um, But I will throw society, quote-unquote society, a bone just a little bit because... They've only had one interaction with this robot. I don't know what they necessarily owe it. Um, you know what I mean? Because they don't know the giant. 
they don't know him. They've never really met him. All they know is that he saved two kids. And uh, even then, you don't even know if he just tripped on something and accidentally opened his hand and said, no, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they don't necessarily owe him anything because they don't really know him. Maybe that's just from my outlook on life, which is maybe a little cynical in a way. But especially in 1957, I would, I would throw them a little bit of a bone because this everything that they have just experienced in this town for the last 20 minutes is like nothing they've ever seen before. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I don't, I don't know exactly if we can um, say that they've failed the giant because you have to ask the question and it wasn't really a viable question back in the day, but today it's starting to become a little more viable of whether or not artificial intelligence, you know, self-aware robots or whatever deserve a voice. I mean, that's a big question that's starting to get asked now. We're wondering if like that ever happens and it could potentially happen, <laughs> like in the next 50 years, I think. And we did discuss that a little bit in the last episode of, of whether or not we should be viewing them as, you know, valid, I guess, people who deserve the benefit of the doubt and deserve rights and, and, and what have you, I guess. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's not for me at least it's not necessarily a commentary on rights that robots should have or not i i think that we're supposed to relate to edward scissorhands and the iron giant as if they were humans and the funny thing is in both of those movies we actually see them being more quote unquote human than the actual humans right like yeah sure the iron giant is like really sad when that deer is dead and it's humans that killed the deer and right um so i think that it also goes back to the idea of like, it's very easy to be scared of things we don't know and groups that we don't know and people we don't know. And we see that, right? The society is sort of paralyzed by that fear of the unknown. So I don't necessarily think that it's anyone's fault that the Iant, besides the military and Mansley, right? That the giant sort of dies there at the end. But, you know, we do recognize that when we see something that we don't know, it's easy for us to sort of freeze or uh, just follow the authority figures. But there are times where we have to realize like, you know, every life is valuable. This deer's life is valuable. This giant's life is valuable. And we should speak up um, if we have the ability to speak up and defend it. And like you said, I don't really know if that's, something that society in general like acknowledges but i think we are supposed to relate to the giant as as a human and sort of see what that sort of reflects back onto us as humans right sure yeah I, it is an interesting theme to to talk about especially in uh today's climate <laughs> i don't know i feel like personally the way that i see things it is unfair to think that everyone needs to speak out a about everything and everyone has differing opinions as well on top of that so going back to something that you said actually last episode of uh, I can't remember exactly the specifics oh yeah we were talking beforehand about like TikTok and, and political posts and stuff like that and that there's some people that get mad at whatever creators or actors or celebrities that have this huge platform but choose not to speak up about it about whatever you know issues that they think are important at the time you can't expect everyone to to speak up about everything. Something that's been really huge in my life and specifically just events that have happened in my life. Um, life sucks most of the time. 
it's really hard. I have a lot to be grateful for and happy about, but life is really hard and there's a lot of crappy things. My brother passed away back in 2016 and that's not something that I look at as fair or or right at all, obviously. Especially because he was kind of he was kind of a bully back in high school and he's sort of in a way like if you look at his life as a TV show, he's had this beautiful redemption arc and he just turned out to be a great great guy in his adult years. I didn't really need to get in uh, in depth on that, but just there are people who have horrible things or really unfair things um, that happen in their lives. And I think it's kind of perfectly okay for people to say, no, I don't want to talk about this. I feel like that's a valid response for people to have. I think that's okay. I personally am just trying to find anything that I can find that brings me even an ounce of happiness. (laughs) So if that means cutting off certain things that I feel like I have to speak on all the time, I think that's okay. I think, I think people should have their things that they are really passionate about and it's okay for them to not be passionate about other things. I can't remember exactly why I started talking about this, but it was just something that I that weighed on my mind as you were saying whatever it is you were talking about. <laughs> yeah, and I, I totally agree. I think that people are allowed to draw boundaries around what they can and want to engage in. Sure. And I think that that's necessary, right? You can't expect a single person to care about, understand, and speak on every sort of like injustice and every sort of system of oppression that exists in the world. I don't think anyone is expecting us to sort of speak out. I mean, there's probably people that expect that, but it's not a realistic expectation. But I think what we can do is we can listen and we can make space for the people or the issues that need to be addressed. And I think kind of going back to what we talked about before, Uh, We see that with Hogarth kind of tying this back into the Iron Giant at the very end, right? Where (laughs) Hogarth does want to hang out with the Iron Giant and he does want to be friends with him. But he also draws a boundary in a sense of saying like, I know that if I engage in this, I'm going to cause harm to the Iron Giant. And he allows the Iron Giant to continue to exist in a space that the Iron Giant needs to exist in. And I think that humans you know we can't understand and address everything but there's definitely a difference between sort of turning a an eye away from problematic things in the world and saying i just don't want to deal with that and saying like i'm not going to you know be vocal and speak on this but i'm going to like empathize and support the people who are like dealing with this struggle right now or yeah not even necessarily like like it depends on how like you support them in a way cuz obviously there's different levels of support but it doesn't necessarily need to be in an outward like everyone can see my support but as long as maybe you're showing some kind of enthusiasm maybe for what they really care about or 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 just not putting them down even at the very least for whatever issues that are super important to them i think that's i think that is uh really important yeah i think that in some spaces and in on some issues not saying anything and giving space to the people who need to talk on that issue is a a good thing, right? Like you said, we don't need to have an opinion on everything, but that doesn't mean that we don't acknowledge that X issue is an issue. Oh, sure. We I don't need to go and speak about at length about these topics. But when I hear people talking about them or something happens in the news, like even just saying like, yes, I don't understand this and I don't 
really get the nuances of it, but I acknowledge your lived experience and I will support you in what that is. And sometimes it's just listening, you know? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Cool. Do you have more that you want to say? There was one other thing I wanted to talk about. Go for it. Because I didn't, I just had kind of some small things and that was it. Okay. One last theme that I wanted to talk about was the idea of media representation in this movie. Interesting. So I think the first thing we need to acknowledge is that this movie virtually has no diverse representation. I mean, granted, it was created in the 90s. And I don't feel like we were really having that conversation back then. And I don't know anything about Maine either or Rockwell. Yes. But I think that I'm pretty sure there's no people of color or there's virtually no people of color. And the only woman in this is Anne and her primary role as a mother and eventually a partner to a man. And so I think that's the first thing we need to acknowledge is that this movie does have a lot of good themes, but there's not a whole lot of diverse representation across various uh, types of identities. But um, something that I thought was really interesting was there is representation for the Iron Giant. And so what I mean by that is when Hogarth shows him the comic books, he shows him Superman and he shows him uh, Atomo, the metal menace, right? And I think it's really interesting that the Iron Giant literally sees a comic of another Iron Giant. Yeah. But because the media is representing Iron Giants as villains, the Iron Giant doesn't want to be Atomo because Atomo is a bad guy. Mm -hmm. And so I just thought it was really interesting that like the Iron Giant sees another Iron Giant, but because there is lacking representation of Iron Giants in media, he shies away from that and instead wants to be Superman, which he has no physical or like quote unquote biological characteristics that he shares with Superman. So I just thought that was kind of interesting was like you see him shy away from what would be considered representation, which I just thought was kind of like an interesting concept. But yeah, anyway. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I, I definitely see what you're saying. Yeah, I did notice that when I was watching the film, there was there was hardly any diversity at all. And yeah, I mean, I will say that there's like maybe two two other women in the film. I think there's someone in like the mayor's office or like, you know, secretary and and then um, and then maybe a couple of women in the diner as well. But yeah, it is interesting. Well, I'm actually happy that you really or that you brought up that scene because that was like the last kind of couple of things that I wanted to talk about were those comics and let me find it real quick in my notes okay so the Atomo comic well actually no let's start with the Superman comic because this kind of goes along with the themes that we've been discussing there's like two little characters like there's Superman and then there's like I think a man and a woman or something that are at the bottom of the comic and then there's little like speech bubbles that are above them and I think the man is saying there goes Superman a menace to earth ever since he became radioactive. And it's interesting to see like that theme even carried another subtle detail that theme being carried in to even such a small thing as the comic although it is a pretty important scene. Yeah, I didn't notice that. Yeah, to see how uh, the giant would rather be viewed not as a tamo and but and then you see the theme of you know there's people out there that see Superman as a bad guy just because he's different. I think from what we've been talking about. And then the woman is saying, goodbye, Superman. Will I ever see you again? And she obviously sees him as 
a hero, as someone who's saving the day, as someone to really look up to and and see him as such a good guy. And I feel like that yeah, that is a commentary on on how there seem to be two groups of people in this film and and how they view the Iron Giant. And mainly the person that we're really looking through is Hogarth that sees him as a hero and as a friend and, you know, someone to really take care of and to look up to, especially at the end. And and then you have what we've been talking about as, as the military looking at him as a menace and something that needs to, to go away because, um, because he's just something that you don't understand. And then also looking at the Atomo comic, this doesn't really go along necessarily <laughs> with that theme that I was just talking about, but there's like a what looks like a bad guy, whatever actual like human villain that's off to the side. And then there's a little dialogue thing that says up top, who controls the metal monster with an exclamation point and a, and a question mark. This is another theme really to kind of think about during the film, like who controls the metal monster. Originally I was kind of looking at it as like, Oh man, what, what like bad guy on his home planet is, (laughs) is controlling him, which is an interesting question in itself. But when you think about everything that we've been talking about, it's the military's actions in the film. It's the essentially, you know, the the bad the people that are made out to be the bad guys in this film, truly, that is in a way controlling this monster. No, well, not monster, this giant, and making him into a monster. It's although you see Atamo and you see him on the cover and he's viewed as the bad guy and the giant doesn't want to feel like the bad guy. It's kind of showing you the idea that it's not necessarily him. It's not necessarily Atamo or, you know, in other words, the giant that is making himself the bad guy. It looks to be someone else that's or something else that's controlling him. So I think that's something really important to carry through or that that really shines and carries through this whole theme of choosing who you want to be in just such a small, little, subtle, you know, comic detail. Yeah, I I hadn't noticed that in the comic, so I'm glad that you pointed that out. And I think, too, we've talked a little bit about the theme of control Mm. um, throughout this. So I think that that's really interesting that that comes out literally in, in the movie as well. And I think, too, like, it gets me thinking about what do we do and how do we react to things that we can't control, like other people, but also also life experiences, because we can't control other people. Right. But do we, are we constantly afraid of them? Are we trying to hurt them? Are we trying to understand them, empathize with them, relate with them, be friends with them? Um, and you see a diverse range of responses to things we can't control in our life. But really the only thing in life we can control is ourselves for the most part. And I think this movie kind of teaches you it's always better to respond with kindness and empathy and um, understanding than violence because violence only begets violence in regards to violence coming from the systems of power, right? But I think that the people who hold all of the systemic institutional power respond with violence to the unknown, whereas the people who don't have that institutional power like Hogarth respond with love and kindness. And we see that eventually it's that love that helps solve the problem instead of the institutional violence that solves the problem. Yeah. And something that you reminded me of is, is the scene where Hogarth is playing with a little toy gun with the giant in the scrapyard and Dean's just over there working on a car or something like that. 
And then he goes into defensive mode and starts attacking really the gun, not Hogarth, but he starts attacking and Hogarth <laughs> manages to get out. Like he accidentally gets out of the way and works on his gun because it's it's like not working anymore or something. And you see Dean, he sees it and he goes. And when you think about the, the military in the movie, they go into attack mode. Like it's it is attack mode because they're they're on the offensive because the giant's not actually doing anything. They go on the offensive. The giant goes in the defensive. And when you look at Dean, he doesn't go into the offensive. He goes into the defensive. So that's a nice similarity that you can draw between the giant and Dean and Hogarth. They always go into the defensive, and that's something that I really love about Dean. Um, as a character, is that he just sees Hogarth almost die, and he immediately says, you need to get back, dude, and we can't trust this thing right now because he's going into attack mode. And it's understandable because we haven't seen that in the giant yet, and all of a sudden he's going crazy. In my head, I would automatically assume, like, oh, he's going haywire. Like, we have to get out. Like, he's something's obviously wrong with him inside of his head, and we need to get out of the way. So I think that's just a really cool thing to see in Dean and uh, a really defining characteristic of him. Yeah, and I love that you see Dean immediately learn that he's wrong, right? Yes. He like tells the giant to leave and then he sees the gun and is like, he was just reacting to the gun. And then you see Dean take responsibility and go after the giant and try to fix things and try to like make it better. And so, yeah, I agree. I really do like Dean for that, that his response to violence isn't violence, but... It's defensiveness when the military that holds all of this institutional power that should be the most responsible and the ones that use violence as a last resort, their immediate reaction is violence. And so I think that if the institutional powers hadn't acted violently, then there would have been no violence. Sure. Anyway, I thought that that was interesting. I just, I really like this idea too of a theme of control and a theme of like, how do you relate to individuals and people and things that you don't know um, and that are unknown to you. And I just really love, like we talked about Hogarth's reaction, right? I just love that Hogarth is just like curious and friendly. And um, at the very end, he learns to sacrifice his own needs in order to protect the Iron Giant. Yes. Yes. It's such a good film. I don't know. Do you have anything else that you wanted to uh, bring up? No, I feel like we've talked a plenty. I know. It's I mean it's a pretty short film, so Yeah, we've talked longer than the film ran. <laughs> yeah. Oh shoot, actually I do have one more thing to talk about actually. And it's it probably won't take that long because it's not really a theme to discuss. It's just an interesting question. But the scene where the giant and well, they go to the lake and they're gonna go, you know, just kind of play in the lake and he sees Hogarth jump into the jump jump into it or maybe it's a river, I don't remember. And uh, he cannonballs and the giant looks at it and it's like, Oh, that looks fun. And then he goes back and then he, he just, you think that he's going away. He's not impressed by the cannonball or something like that. And then he comes running back and then, uh, cannonballs into the lake. And then you see the whole thing flood the whole area. And I love the animation It was so freaking funny to me. And I, I love that they did this, that you see all the, the water basically flooding the area and you see fishes and stuff going by and different items. And then you see, Dean just kind of floating along in his chair <laughs> and he looks so unamused like he's so annoyed that this just happened and and then the the water goes away and then there's a truck that comes up he's like hey man what are you doing in the middle of the road and uh and Dean's just like yeah <laughs> and he's like okay and then the guy just drives off it was such a funny moment to me but that scene specifically 
raised a question in me that uh, we can close on real quick. What is the Iron Giant? What does he run off of? I don't understand this. I don't because he eats metal, but why would a robot need metal to survive? Also, he gets electrocuted. Why would he get electrocuted if he probably runs off of some type of power? His eyes glow. He must be running off of some kind of power um, or electricity. And then he doesn't get electrocuted in the water, which you would assume that he would. Do you have any insight on that? What do you think? So that was actually one of the questions was, why does he need to eat metal? Yeah. That was one of the questions I had. So when I was looking it up in the book, he eats metal and it says in the Wikipedia, he rains destruction on the countryside by eating industrial farm equipment. Now, I don't know if that is intentional, if this robot is created to destroy things and the way he destroys it is by eating industrial farm equipment or if he's eating industrial farm equipment and the result of that is that he rains destruction. I don't really know, but that was one of my questions too was like, why does he eat metal? Um, and I don't, I don't know, maybe it's just a cartoon and there's not a reason for it. I don't know. That's, yeah, that's just something that I think we need to suspend our disbelief, I guess, because it really, it really is interesting that he gets electrocuted. Maybe it, all those things that happened were just a catalyst for something more interesting to happen. Um, like Hogarth saving him when he's getting electrocuted at the little power place. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was just so, it was just a weird I didn't understand. Like, I don't I don't think it is because he needs to destroy or whatever that that's why he's eating metal, because you see in the junkyard, he enjoys different kinds of metal. You see him like feasting and looking at something. He's in the middle of eating something and then he looks at something else like, whoa, that's going to be delicious. And he reaches out for it. And obviously he doesn't say that, but he reaches out for it and puts it in his mouth immediately. So he gets enjoyment out of it. That was a scene I really liked, too, when the Iron Giant goes to the junkyard because he when he first sees it he reacts and he sort of has this like almost like puppy dog whine where he's like really excited yeah um and i just i enjoyed that scene because like you talked about before it just really adds character to the iron giant where like he's so human in that moment like he sees all this food and he's like oh i'm so excited just eat all this food that i really really like and it's like i relate to that (laughs) that's that's his trader joe's that's his (laughs) fall treats at trader joe's is the uh, junkyard whether it's wrong or right that's the main driving factor of of where we live is what food items are around <laughs> like that's exactly why we live exactly where uh, me and my wife why we chose to live where we are because everything that we need or want around here is readily available i have my mcdonald's i have other great options as well yep <laughs> i agree i i always tell my wife that if we ever move we just have to have somewhere that has good food because <laughs> Yeah, that's what I need. And apparently that's what the Iron Giant needs to just needs to eat a belly full of food and swim in a river with Hogarth. That's all we need, man. All right. Well, if you don't have anything else to talk about with this film, I think we can go ahead and close up. Yeah. Yeah. Overall, you enjoyed it? Yeah, it was good. I enjoyed it. It's a good movie. And I'm excited for next month's movie. I'll get to that in a second. I'm really or I'll have you introducing in a second. But um, all right, cool. That's the Iron Giant um, at the time that... We're recording this. It was available on HBO Max, so you could watch it if you have a subscription for that. If not, I'm sure you can rent it for a few bucks or buy it, whatever. And yeah, I don't know why you were listening to this if you didn't watch the film already, but because <laughs> we get it. That's the, that's the, I love, I actually really love this podcast because there's so many other film podcasts that just summarize the films. They talk about certain things, blah, blah, blah. But I feel like this one is completely different. And I don't really listen to a lot of film pad- podcasts, but we really just, 
we go all over the place and we really discuss, you know, the deeper things and the, and the deeper meanings behind things and, 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 and themes and whatnot. So it's, it's really cool. I love it. I'm enjoying it so far. Two, two episodes in and I'm really enjoying it. Me too. It's been fun. I never really have anyone to talk about <laughs> these types of things. No one really, no one besides you. That's why I wanted to do the show with you and why I've been asking you every single year to do yeah, yeah. a film podcast with me is because no one else, no one else talks about it like we do in my circles. So anyway, great film, great show. If you ever have anything that you want to write about, um, any comments that you have, any deeper things that you found within each movie that we discuss, you can write into layersoffilmpod at gmail.com. You can also go there at, um, uh, with the same handle at Twitter and Instagram, whatever. And yeah, you can reach us there if you ever want to. And yeah, I think that's it. Big T, do you want to introduce... Oh, I guess it's worth mentioning. Normally, we do the first Monday of each month, but because I wasn't really paying attention to the actual month, which is October, <laughs> and AKA spooky season, I didn't really pick a, a scary film. So we felt like we needed to get somewhat of a, not necessarily a scary film, but something that's a little more on the spooky side for the month of October. So the next episode is going to go out um earlier than normal i have convinced austin to break from our long-standing tradition of <laughs> releasing episodes on the first monday of every month and we are going to be releasing the november episode a day early which just happens to be the very halloween so <sighs> yep and what is what is uh the next film that we're going to be discussing so that people at home can get ready for it yes yeah, so the next film we will be discussing is 2019's Ready or Not. So we will be releasing that episode on Halloween, October 31st, and watch it and get ready for a great conversation. And here's a selling point, because this is finally, this is a movie that I haven't seen. I've never seen it. And this might be the first film where it is, because in my opinion, Edward Scissorhands and The Iron Giant are masterful films, but this might be the first film where you might think it's a terrible movie. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Is it really masterful in your mind? Because it got a seven out of ten on IMDb. I'm a little. I'm a little nervous about it. I think masterful is subjective, <laughs> and this is a movie that my wife and I will be watching every spooky season until we die because we love it that much. All right. All right. Cool. And another selling point is Adam Brody is in this film. That was a selling point for me. I was excited about it. I was I was going to watch it regardless, but the fact that I knew that Adam Brody was in it of the OC and Gilmore Girls fame and Shazam as well, I, I got extra excited. I was like, okay, cool. There's not enough Adam Brody films or, or TV shows. So I'm, I'm excited. So get ready for that. Again, it's Ready or Not, and we will be discussing that film on the th uh, 31st. We'll record it probably a week earlier, though, so if you have anything interesting to say, get in in the next couple of weeks, and uh, and it will come out on the 31st of October. With that, I guess we will see you later. Thanks so much for joining in, and uh, goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye.